just give me a mic check just so I kind of know what your level is and sure. stuff like What'd that. What'd you have for breakfast? One, two, three. How's that? Um, eggs and bacon. Nice. Eggs and bacon? What about <laughs> you? Are you? Are you fasting or are you still yep, eating? Yeah, still fasting. Waiting for 12. So, <laughs> Waiting for 12 uh, to eat. Probably go past it, so I'll get hangry towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. This is episode 194 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and let's go through just a little bit of the news. Henry McKenna was the rising and shining star once again at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition that just wrapped up this past week. If you want to know more about it, go ahead and check out Fred's blog at fredminnick.com because Fred is a judge there. But if you want to know more about the competition, go check out our past podcast episode 144. It features the chairperson, Anthony Dias Blue, that really goes in and talks about what do these medals mean and what you can really expect from it. You can get that in our show notes. Tim Niddle, he was a guest back on episode 88, where he talked about Bourbon 101 during our Bourbon Back to Basics series. He's partnering up to bring the first ever Bourbon and Thoroughbred Infused Lean Management Training and Certification course. It's kicking off April 22nd and 23rd, 2019, and it'll be hosted by the Celerity Group. The kicker is there's only 15 seats available, so if business management and lean certifications are sort of your thing, go get information and your tickets at celerity.com lean. Now, you may or may not have heard there's a little rumor going around that there are no more Knob Creek private selections that are going to be happening until 2020. We need a little bit more confirmation to the story, but so far from our sources is that if you're on the calendar for a barrel selection in 2019, you're going to be okay. However, no new reservations are being made at this time. I'm gonna give a shout out and say thank you to Bill and Timothy over at modernthirst.com for inviting me over to talk about our private label pursuit series. You can hear more about our vision and goals for this label, as well as in-depth reviews of episodes five through nine on the video over at modernthirst.com, or you can find it linked within our show notes. Starting a new bourbon brand is tough, especially when you're in the backyard with the biggest dogs in the industry. However, Cave Zamanian saw a hole in the market where he could bring new mash bills and new experiences to bourbon drinkers. As the founder of Rabbit Hole Distilling, he's faced some tough criticism, but he's taking it head on in this episode. We talk about the startup hustle, contract distilling, pricing strategies, their five-year roadmap, and a lot more. Now we can't forget Fred, so here is this week's Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. That's the sound of Kettle Brand Potato Chips Bourbon Barbecue. I saw this on Instagram the other day, and I thought to myself, I have got to get this. Now, I'm not normally a sucker for all these fast food barbecue sandwiches. And when you see barbecue bourbon on, on some kind of random bologna or you've got, you know, whatever, there's all kinds of stuff out there that's putting bourbon on the label. I mean, for God's sakes, there are, there's a gene company, Aging Denim and former bourbon barrels, and they're putting bourbon on the pants. So it, you're seeing it everywhere. But I was really intrigued by these, by these potato chips because... I love Kettle. I mean, this is like my favorite um, potato chip company. So I had to get a bag and I'm going to taste it live here. Well, I guess it's not live, but I'm going to taste it right here. We'll see what it tastes like. 
Well, first of all, this bag is not easy to open. I think you gotta, all right, here we go. It's got one of those little tear things. There you go. All right, here goes. Now they're not the, they're not ridged. They're like basic, you know, potato chips, like a Lay's. Um, smells, it smells like a, like a barbecue Pringle. It kind of, it's still really nice. Oh man. I could eat the entire bag of these. You know, there's just a hint of like the bourbon flavor in there, but there's enough that you can tell that's this is actually bourbon. Like, you know, they they did they tried very hard to have that flavor in there. And what a time a lot of times what I find with these with these fast food companies and these uh, snack companies that try to include bourbon in their uh, product, they kind of get the sweet part, but they don't get that little hint of oak. And there's a little hint of oak in there. Maybe maybe the barbecue kind of helped round that out. But I definitely recommend this for some tailgating. It's quite fantastic. And it's Kettle Brand Potato Chips Bourbon Barbecue. Um, yeah. And I hope all I hope all uh, companies that are trying to include bourbon in their in their products, they actually try to give some detail to it, like in terms of the flavor, to make sure that, you know, hey, it actually does taste like bourbon. So that's this week's Above the Char. This is going to be a rare one. I'm probably not going to do many more potato chip tastings, but hey, you never know. If, if you see some bourbon potato chips out there, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, and I'll be sure to taste them. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here at a downtown location that's relatively new. It's immaculate as well when you start walking through and you start seeing the uh, the still and you start walking around. You see the all the liquid that flows into the pipes when you start walking, when you tour in the facility too. So 
Rabbit Hole's starting to really make a name for themselves here in Louisville. Yeah, it's been kind of cool seeing, you know, we're locals and uh, we saw the the construction site from kind of the beginning to now what it is. And like you walk into this place and you take a look around. I mean, it's beautiful. Like most distillery tours, you know, it's an old decrepit building kind of like with old, you <laughs> know, it's got funk the, everywhere. The black and fungus like, covered on everything. Exactly. And you're like, do I want to walk through here? Uh, <laughs> you know, is this okay? But you come in here and it's like bright, modern, fresh, like really cool uh, place and uh, excited you know, to dive into rabbit hole because not a lot of people, you know, know the story, kind of find out what Cave is all about. You know, we're, I'm really interested to get that side of it because we've seen it from the outside, but we want to kind of get an inside look at what's going on here because I think they're doing some exciting things and uh, stuff people will get excited about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said that, there's always this this uncanny bias that's out there in the mm-hmm. bourbon world too. And when people think of a new entrant to the market, everybody immediately has hesitation. And I think that's really what we want to try to do today is try to dispel some of those myths that people might have about the brand, about the whiskey, about everything that's sort of wrapped up into it. And we're going to, we're going to really dive in because we've, we've had an opportunity to try some of these products before. And, you know, I love the rye. The sherry finish is, is really good as well. And we're going to dive in not only to that, we're going to dive into the business. We're going to dive into, again, some of those biases. So we're yeah. going to, we're going to touch on every angle here. There, there's nobody more humble than whiskey fans. You know, they're, they're, they're just you know, really <laughs> yeah, like, right. you know, they're real accepting and real, uh, you know, like, come yeah. on in. We'd love to have you. you yeah. Know? So, you uh, tell it to everybody on Reddit and Facebook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, with that, you know, do your introduction. Yeah, so today we have Cave Zamanian. He is the founder and whiskey maker of a rabbit hole distillery in Louisville, Kentucky. So, Cave, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Cave, first of all, thank you for getting our memo about wearing gray. We're all, yeah, we all got that. So, I mean, it was funny this morning. We we showed up here. I look at Ryan. I'm like, God damn it. Like, we're wearing the same shirt. We've got, we've got t-shirts. We've got multiple polos in all different colors. And then we show up wearing the same thing. It's like, well, we, there's two concerts this weekend. And so I w- went through all my festival tees. And stuff, so, <laughs> but anyway, appreciate well, that's you. What ha- that's what happens when you guys do what, however many podcasts you've done uh, together, right? Exactly. You're going to have a match every time it's here. We are. I mean, it was funny. You say that it's uh, Ryan's like my second wife because, well, even my wife says, you, I, I, am? Think, I think you don't. It's news to you now. She's like, I think you talk to him more than you talk to me. And I'm like, well, that's, that's probably true. I go to the call log and yeah, that's, it's true. It's, it's a lot more. But, so, you know, Kabe, I kind of want to start at the beginning with you, like kind of talk about your introduction of bourbon sort of um, you know, really how you, you got this bug and how it bit you. Sure, sure. I think the, the credit goes to my wife. My wife, uh, Heather, is from Louisville, Kentucky. We met uh, about 16 years ago. And even though I, um, I you know, I um, was familiar somewhat with bourbon, I really didn't have the depth of knowledge that I did until we started dating. Uh, being a Kentucky girl, she uh, she really, you know, basically uh, showed me everything there is in terms of um, her first passion, which is Kentucky and second passion bourbon. Started coming down here in Louisville and um, really kind of got the bug very early on. I think part of what was really fascinating for me was learning about the history and uh, the tradition of bourbon in Kentucky in particular. I was also really surprised at the time living in Chicago, how few bourbon brands were on the market. Now this is looking back, you know, 15, 16 years Mm -hmm. ago, 
uh, we didn't have the level of excitement that we do now. So that was really the early part of it. And, um, you know, being kind of a academic and, and a practitioner in my old um, uh, career, I started digging in, learning anything I could learn about the history of bourbon. And that was really the, the early phase of it, uh, realizing what a what an exceptional spirit it is, what um, a beautiful kind of um, part of Americana, if you would, that not a whole lot of people know about. And I was really struck by the fact that, you know, you go to a bar at the time, you have Scotch center stage and you got American whiskey, if there is even any, flanked to the side. And it was uh, it was quite shocking, actually. What was that first bottle that was like, all right, this is like scotch, move away, bourbon, <laughs> here I am. I don't know. How do you actually stop like going? Because I, I think I read somewhere you were a scotch drinker. So have you, have you kind of like switched the, uh, uh, flip the script, I guess you could say on it? You know, I, I don't drink scotch, not even close, close to what I used to drink. But, uh, but I'm experimenting with all kinds of stuff. So I'm a big fan of, you know, all kinds of whiskey, be it Irish, um, Japanese, Scotch, of course, and even um, you get some interesting offerings now out of India as well. So, you know, we got to stay on top of the game as far as palates, flavor profiles and things like that. So we're still drinking, but by and large, um, I'm a bourbon drinker now and American whiskey. So talk to me about the first time you met your wife. Was was she sitting there drinking bourbon neat and you're like, oh, this is pretty intimidating because <laughs> I know like if I go back to my youth and I try to find a girl that's drinking neat, I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this one. She's, she might be a firecracker. She was actually drinking Old Forester with a couple of ice cubes. And I don't think I've even had Old Forester back then. I think I was, uh, I knew about Beam, uh, Makers, and uh, Woodford was just kind of out. Um, and that was really about it. And then uh, uh, Old Forester was a new kind of intro to me. And that was really the beginning of it. It was, uh, it was a little intimidating, but it was also exciting because, you know, uh, finding a girl that likes whiskey was was awesome. It was a, a really nice kind of back and forth between scotch and bourbon. And uh, at the end, she won out. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> and it's usually how it works in every marriage. They always exactly. win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what kind of made you want to go down the path of, of starting a distillery? I mean, it's it's not an, an easy decision yeah. to say like, oh, yeah, like. It's one thing it. to be like, oh, this is cool, bourbon. You know, this is fun. It's one thing to be like, I'm going to take on a uh, hundred year old plus industry and like sink everything I can into it and like watch out for me. Yeah. You know, um, it, it really was a, was a consumer approach at first. Right. So I got excited about it, learn everything I could. I, as I said earlier, I was a little surprised of how few people, how few brands are out there, how few people, especially outside of that kind of Kentucky, Tennessee belt know about it. And, um, growing up in California, um, it was a little bit of deja vu with what I experienced in the early days of Napa and Sonoma, right? So um, Napa, Sonoma, you know, came on the scene with the wine industry, and now we know what they what it is. Um, and in those days, that was basically the kind of uh, uh, the association that I had, that I thought there's an opportunity here. And then the other piece of it is that I realized there's a lot of monotony um, in terms of the offerings, right? So at the time, you had four or five distilleries, essentially a handful of distilleries making 95 percent of the products out there, if not more, and uh, realized you got basically the same liquid in a different bottle, different package. And uh, that was really the the kind of aha moment that I can probably do something that's unique and stands apart and it's distinct. And, and, um, and it's also contributing to what's out there. So when you, when you think about that and you think, well, okay, there's, and it's true. It's like 90%, maybe it's been like 90% of the market now is all the yep. same big guys and they've got a lot of the same juice at different proofs and different labels, but 
what what was it that you really said like okay this is what I'm I want to change like what was what was that first idea that you had that said I think this is how I'm gonna make my my stake in the game because I'm gonna change it doing X Y or Z what was what was that thought you know it was more of a process than than a kind of an event so it was a series of aha moments it started with with that recognition that you got a lot of monotony I think um, again having that reference to beer and wine um, I felt that. Here's an opportunity where that I can do something different and digging into the history, realized back in the day, pre-prohibition in particular, you had well over 200, 300 distilleries here in Kentucky, and then just as many different types of recipes of bourbon. So that variety really kind of went away through consolidation post-prohibition. So that was the beginning of saying, okay, now let's let's start playing around with different stuff. And I took a page uh, from the craft beer guys, honestly. I think the uh, fact that they started experimenting with different malts and hops and grains and things of that nature was really the beginning of saying, you know, I can probably do something that's that's a little different. Now, the beginning of it was pretty humble. We were just planning on doing a, you know, pot still, a small operation that grew into what it is now. But that's generally the way it started. Who's the first call you make when you're like, all right, I'm going to start a distillery. Uh, who, who do you reach out to? And you're like, all right, help me get down this path. Like, where, where do you get that ball rolling? You know, that's one of the advantages of being in Louisville. So um, the folks in Louisville are really, really friendly uh, in the industry. So one of the first folks that I talked to is a gentleman named Larry Ebersol. Larry was the uh, master distiller at Pernod Ricard for years. He built the Wild Turkey Distillery. He was at MGP, and he's in the same vintage and same class with Jim Rutledge and Dave Shurek. So after I met Larry, got an introduction to Dave and Jim. And, um, and there's also another gentleman named Richard Wolf, who was very early on a consultant. And these folks really embraced me, took me under their wings. And, uh, you know, we would just go around and talk about bourbon, talk about whiskey. And um, their generosity really was the door that opened up taking me in the direction of, okay, now not only just start reading some books, but maybe take some classes and go to different distilleries and, and learn what's the kind of inner part of this operation, basically. Well, yeah. So, you know, talking is one thing, but I think the other thing is, you know, Ryan, you know, Ryan's a big guy. He, he loves big guy. I'm he's a big a, guy. He's a big guy. He's a big business <laughs> guy. He lo- <laughs> but he's, he, you know, he loves business. He also listens to a business podcast. And so I guess the, the other thing is like when you're starting to, to go down this path, how do you get that ball rolling? I mean, is it, was it, was it finding investors? Was it sourcing liquid? Like for you, like, what did that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So the, for me, the, the first step was to find a distillery that would make my recipes for me. Because after that initial period of experimentation with, uh, you know, with, with these guys learning about it and playing around with different recipes, the question was, which route do I want to go? Do I want to go with the traditional route where a lot of new brands do, which is sourcing liquid? Or am I able to find a distillery that would essentially make my recipes for me, which is the contract distillation route? And um, this is now, you know, seven years ago when I incorporated the company. It was really hard to find a distillery that would contract distill. Um, so... I was pretty bullish and determined that I don't want to source because it kind of went against what I just said earlier as far as having the same liquid. And after a few years of just scouring the state, I was fortunate enough to find a distillery that would make those recipes for me. So that was really the first step. 
the initial seed money from a business standpoint was all personal. And once I got the contract in place, got a few um, family members involved and just very typical of most startups, you got family and friends that are stupid enough to put their money in first. It's like the three Fs, family, friends, and fools. Or that's something. right. That's right. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to those guys who believed with believed in me. And uh, and then after that, then we started really kind of getting serious about the scope and the scale of it, and started having to go out there and raise money for the larger project. One question I always have for founders and entrepreneurs, like I'm sure, and it's probably just like in any business, but Talk about dealing with, did, were people discouraging you to do this or telling you like, this is crazy, like dealing with the nose, like, because when you start a business, <laughs> a lot of people tell you you're crazy and there's a lot of negativity and like, you can't do that. You know, there's a lot of small minded thinking. How, how was that? How did you approach that? And how did you push past that to make this a reality? Everybody starting with my wife and everybody I talked to thought I'm out of my mind, just <laughs> yeah. candidly. I, and I think, you know, when you look at it, uh, from their vantage point, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I'm not from the industry, so how the hell am I going to go out there and make something work and on top of it, raise the money to do it? Um, but I think the first person I had to really um, kind of gain her favor and approval was was my spouse. Without your family, you're not able to get something like this off the ground. Once she was behind my uh, and support supporting me, uh, the next step was to go out there and start talking about what the vision is and what the plan is, more more importantly. I think um, probably what helped me get over the hump was these gentlemen that I mentioned as part of my kind of consulting crew, if you would, and being able to get that initial contract distillation that allowed us to basically go out and say, look, guys, this is for real. We're not just kind of dreaming here. And we got a recipe that's unique and we want to build on that. How do you uh, uh, outline expectations to investors? Because it seems like if you have investors and board, they're always going to butt their nose in and be like, we need this X return. We need it by this day. We need this. This is the way, like, how do you outline those expectations and then follow through with them? You know, you know, it's a challenge. I think you can lay it out as beautifully as possible, but it just, as you pointed out, um, reality and um, what your investors want are two different things. <laughs> and the landscape especially changes, in the business, especially, right? <laughs> especially in the bourbon business. I think part of it is also for me, it was luck, right? The timing is right. I started in 2012. That's when we incorporated Rabbit Hole. And it was a time when still there was a lot of ground to cover and there's a lot of folks excited about what we're doing. And they felt that, especially a lot of the Kentucky uh, folks that joined our group, felt that they want to be a part of it. There's something meaningful here. And um, then we got the ball rolling. But even in the last five, six, seven years, the landscape's changed dramatically, right? I mean, you guys know we have over 3,000 distilleries now in, in the U.S. So there's a lot of new brands coming on, the competitions affecting everything. And as a result, that beautiful performa that you put together seven years ago is not the yeah. same uh, today. Do you think it's easier for someone to, outside of the state of Kentucky, to kind of build a distillery and kind of like you, they always talk about own your yard, you know, own your, yeah. your back turf. And so talk about like, how difficult it is coming into somewhere like Louisville or Kentucky where this is the, the birthplace or, you know, talk about that. Yeah, for us, it's an advantage, right? I, I think I wouldn't build a distillery anywhere else personally. And the reason being because um, I want to be with the big 
big guys, and I want to be essentially in the major league. So for us, Louisville and Kentucky represents that. With that said, you know, I think there's a lot of great craft distilleries that have popped up around the country, um, and they're doing amazing things. I think for me, the distinction is, are you able to make your own liquid and do it in the quality and consistency that you want and really stand on your own as an authentic brand? The problem that I see, and this is one of the issues that um, that I see as one of the, I guess, um, things that we got to watch out for is that a lot of these distilleries are relying on sourced products, usually from Kentucky, Indiana, or Tennessee. And once they go online with their own liquid, without that expertise that Louisville and Kentucky has to offer, as well as the seasonality and all the other things, um, it's a question mark how good that liquid is going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that one of the big reasons why you said, I'm going to go and build a distillery? Because maybe if you knew that you were going to go down a sourcing path, like that was that's going to run out at some point and, yeah. and the product's going to change. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but everybody out there that's very affluent in the bourbon community, they know who are, you know, they had really good sourced MGP whiskey. They ran out and now they're struggling. <laughs> yeah. So is, is that one of the a motivating factor behind doing it? Or is it just because like, I eh, just wanted to, I wanted to own my own product. It's a combination of the two. I wanted to own my own product, but at the same time, I felt that um, consumers are getting wise, right? We're not, um, we're only a Google away from the reality of who's behind the brand and what's in the bottle. And uh, I think if you're trying to build a sustainable brand, you have to be true. You have to be authentic because the IQ level of consumers are a lot higher than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's just a reality of it. So for me, the vision was make sure you're authentic. You're not bullshitting and you really design and build a place that people can come in and see it soup to nuts um, without any smoke and mirrors. And that is going to be the model for a sustainable brand. You know, speaking of the, the Google away, and I don't know if there's an NDA in place or anything like that, but can you disclose the source of where you were contract distilling? You know, personally, I have no problems disclosing that. The distillery that uh, we partnered up with, they have an issue with it. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it takes a whole lot to figure out where we actually distilled sure. our products. Um, why, why, why do you think we're that very is proud in this industry, though? Like, why are there, I don't know, it seems like a distillery would want to know that hey, my product's in that bottle and I helped them start just to bring more attention back to them. What, why do you think that is in this industry? You know, it's, it's a good question. I think that's just kind of the way it's been historically for me. And we've had this discussion with those guys before. I'm in that camp. Uh, I'm in the camp that you just mentioned. I would be super proud of making that liquid because it's exceptional liquid. And I would want to shout it off top of the rooftop. But for some reason, I think some folks are kind of still thinking about it in the way the old guards did. Mm-hmm. And they want to be very protective of that information because back in the day, there was a lot of horse trading, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what we're doing with Rabbit Hole is trying to in some ways pierce through that um, old way of approaching it. If there's anything about bourbon, you know, they really embrace change. That's you know, <laughs> uh, right up their alley. You know, it's the first thing you think of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not going to change anything. It's been a hundred years. Nothing's gone yeah, wrong. Don't broke. Don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of want to talk about the the juice and liquid itself, right? Because I think there's there's some people that might not know it. So, kind of talk about. First, like how you came up with with your mash bill and your grain recipe, and then you know what you're doing today with either the sourcing of the grains and everything that goes into the product itself. Sure, sure. Um, being a Scotch guy initially, I, I've always been fascinated by with malted grains. Um, like I said, a big fan of craft beer guys. 
So um, started looking at different types of grain bills and mash bills and different types of malted grains. Determined that, you know, malted grains are a little bit more expensive, but at the end of the day, they're really Can you explain for the, like a newbie, yeah. new person, what's the difference between a malted grain and like a regular grain stores? Yeah, so basically the malting process is a process where you essentially, it's depending on who's doing the malting, slightly different variation, but essentially you trick the grain to start budding essentially, but then you stop that growth process. And what it does, it allows a lot more of that enzymatic reaction that you want in the cooking process and the fermentation process, but also brings out some really interesting flavors. That's number one. The other thing is that, um, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, but there's at least a couple of groups here in the country that are doing some phenomenal, interesting experimentation with different types of malting processes where what they do is they're bringing forth different types of flavors with different types of malted grains. So as an example, with our four grain bourbon, which is the bourbon that uh, we currently have on the market, it's 70% corn, 10% malted wheat, 10% malted barley, and 10% honey malted barley. Now, honey malted barley is essentially barley, but again, through this proprietary process that these guys um, use, brings out some little bit more sweeter honey-like notes, if you would. And they have a whole range of other type of malted grains like chocolate malt and so on and so forth that uh, we started experimenting with. And for me, um, that first bourbon, um, we have four recipes of bourbon right now, um, by the way, but the one that's currently on the market was really a nod to my affinity or love for scotch. Um, because it's 20% malted barley and thought that here's a personal touch on it. But also um, at the end, I wanted to have a little bit more of an approachable bourbon, softer, um, that allows some new whiskey consumers to come to the fold. I'm glad you said the honey thing because I'm a fan of Honey Nut Cheerios. Like regular Cheerios can just like get out of here. <laughs> so when the bourbon goes through, the comb kind of, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know, gets a little drip off of it. You know? uh, one question I had, so when you're picking your mash bill and like, like deciding these are the flavors I want. How do you, I guess, how do you determine like, cause you're tasting it at new make and like, how do you know that those are going to translate years down the road? Do you have someone helping you to determine that? Or like, are you just like, this is. Honestly, that's the risk. Yeah. That's the risk. You don't know what the heck's going to happen three, four or five years from now. And with that recipe, I remember sitting in front of Larry and we were just, chatting about what I want to do. And he said, well, you know, you've had a couple of weeks thinking about this. What kind of mash bill do you want to, you know, run first? And I uh, shared with him this idea and he just paused, which was probably the most frightening 30 seconds <laughs> of my life because I thought that, you know, this guy's going to say this is this is crap. Um, but he came back, said, look, this is, this is interesting. Let's give it a shot. And that was the first run. But honestly, the most um, – Scary thing about this proposition was that because we laid down a lot of barrels, two, three mm -hmm. different recipes. We didn't know how it's going to come out. And that's the risk and that's the gamble. And that's partly the stupidity of it because it's easier to go <laughs> yeah. out there and source what you know rather than not knowing how it's going to turn out a few years down the road. Sure. And the other thing is you have also been recently added to the, uh, the official Kentucky Bourbon Trail. So yeah. kind of talk about what that means to, uh, to you and to the rabbit hole family. Look, it is a huge they feather in our checks. cap. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> the KDA loves their money. That's yeah. very true. We all know that. 
it's a huge feather in our cap. First and foremost, we got a now we got now a seat at the at the board, which means that we are able to contribute and have a conversation with the big players about what's happening in our state, what's happening in our signature industry, and more importantly, have have a say in the matter, right? Which is fantastic for a newcomer to join this stellar team with the with the tradition and heritage that's around the table is just surreal, and has a huge impact for our team here at the distillery because. Now we're planning, I think we're going to be hitting somewhere between 20,000 to 22,000 people coming through our distillery this year. That's huge, not just on the revenue side of it, but more importantly, the opportunity to showcase what we're doing and, and hopefully get some advocates in the process is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, you, you are going to, I mean, it's a challenge, right? I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you like to be molded into a quote unquote craft distiller? Or do you think that you're, you're beyond that now? You know, I love the word craft when it applies to attention to detail. I think whatever you're building, as long as you're attending to those finer points, that to me is craft. With that said, um, you know, we're at a category now, we're, we're producing basically 1.2 million proof gallons. That's approximately 20,000 barrels, right? So officially speaking, we're not in that kind of a smaller distillery bucket anymore, um, but our Every bottle is a small batch, right? So we basically harvest about 13 to 15 barrels at a time. And that's, you know, truly a small batch release. Almost every bottling that we do is small batch. So I like to think that from that standpoint, our attention to detail is still part of that craft movement. But we have aspirations to be big. We want to be a national player. Or we want to be the next big spirit company um, out of Louisville, Kentucky. Do you want to see TTB actually define the word small batch? Because even today, a, a Jim Beam light label can technically be a small yeah, batch. Yeah. Like, you know, would, would you want to see that sort of change happen? You know, I think it's an interesting point. I would probably before that would like to see TTB um, differentiate better bourbon versus finished bourbon or finished whiskeys. I think that um, the camps out there are probably divided a little bit. Uh, I think that we can probably take a page from our um, colleagues across the pond. You know, the Europeans have been uh, really dogged about provenance and making sure the integrity of whatever spirit it is intact. Now we are at a point where there's a lot of finished whiskeys or finished bourbons out there. And to me, once you put something in a secondary barrel that's not new American oak, it's no longer bourbon. Now, there's nothing wrong with it because we have a PX finished bourbon that we're very proud of and very excited about. But I think in order for bourbon to remain bourbon, TTB does have to get to a point where there's a greater clarity between what is bourbon and what is finished bourbon. Otherwise, I think consumers will get confused because, you know, ultimately finished bourbon ends up being in this catch-all category of distilled spirit specialty, where you can add flavoring, you can do all kinds of stuff to it that is not indicated on the label and the consumers don't know about it. So you're not adding any more honey to the, to the, to it after it's done. <laughs> we don't, okay. we don't sure add anything, my friend, nothing, nothing's added. That's, that's the whole point because, you know, um, we take a lot of pride in what we're doing and making sure everything is essentially um, as is just simply distilling the grains, putting in the barrel, and that's it. No added flavoring, no added coloring, none of those gimmicky stuff. And so, you know, this is an awesome facility. I think I read somewhere it's like 15 million that was invested to build this. Is something like that correct? Yeah, actually, if you, for the building, 15 million, if you add the 
uh, equipment and everything, soup to nuts, uh, eighteen million dollars. And so it keeps going. It keeps going and going and going. Yeah, there's a, there's a ceiling tile that has to be replaced. Yeah. Or something. you know, it's just maintenance. But you know, the other thing is uh, is if you're trying to make this a uh, you know full blown distillery and event destination, um, what what are you trying to do different that would entice people to to come and visit Rabbit Hole when they are coming to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail? Yeah. Well, aside from an attractive building from the outside, what we're trying to create is an immersive experience. I want folks to come in here, first and foremost, to get excited about manufacturing. You know, we talk a lot about American manufacturing, but um, manufacturing is not made sexy. And I wanted to make manufacturing sexy. Mm-hmm. So when you come in here, the design elements are there to get people excited about what we're doing here and what's happening in Kentucky as far as the process of making great whiskey. And then second of all, I want them to have a fully immersive experience. So when you go in, you are literally raised off the manufacturing floor. You have a full sensory experience, smells, sights, sounds, everything. So at the end of it, once you've tasted the products, you've experienced it, you walk away with your head up high, um, proud of not just Louisville, not just Kentucky, but really bourbon and American whiskey. I want bourbon to be front and center in every bar in America. I do not want it to see flanked to the side of scotch ever anywhere. Sure. So there's another, maybe it's a tough question. That's kind of really I want to get with this. And, and this kind of goes you know, about you and when people might see the name, you know, Kabazamania, do you think people in the general public have an unfair bias? Because you're not a, you're not John Smith, sure. you know, you're, you're, if I don't remember correctly, Iranian descent. Yep. Um, yep. So kind of like, t- just kind of like touch on that for us a little bit. Sure, sure. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. And when people might see the name, you know, Kabazamanian, do you think people in the general public have an unfair bias? Because you're not a, you're not John Smith. You know, you're, I don't remember correctly, Iranian descent. Yep. Um, yep. So kind of like, 
just kind of like touch on that for us a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think personally, I've never experienced any bias or prejudice, which is really, you know, um, it's a testament to, again, the folks in Kentucky and in Louisville. Beyond that, honestly, if there's any reactions, again, I'm not um, familiar with it. With that said, I think that in some ways, ironically, it's actually in line with the history of bourbon and American whiskey. Um, the entire American whiskey is predicated on story of outsiders and the people that are essentially unsung heroes, right? So if you think about Mary Dowling as an example, Mary Dowling was the first woman who owned a Kentucky bourbon distillery. Nobody really talks about Mary. Nobody knows about her. Or Bertie Brown, who was an African-American woman in the frontier in Missouri, not only making whiskey, was selling whiskey, right? So, or there is another gentleman, Jokimi, Jokiki Takamine. This is a Japanese-American who ended up in Chicago and was on the forefront of all the stuff that we're doing in terms of science of distillation with the impact of yeast on enzymes and so on and so forth. These are all people that, you know, have been part and parcel of the industry, but nobody knows about. So for me, it's actually an opportunity to come to the fold and say, look, you know, um, I'm proud of my heritage. I am proud of being an American. And more importantly, I want to be a part of this movement that just like Johnny Appleseed, we're going out there spreading the gospel and telling people about what an American spirit really is about. Yeah. Do you find it difficult because you don't have that connection to whiskey except recently, you know, through your wife, like most people starting up in the distillery, they have like some family lineage sure. or something. Or there's, there's one beam in everywhere, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> like where's the beam? beam where's yeah. the beam around here? Is he got the six the degrees of Jim Beam, you know, the, well, so everybody's yeah, talking yeah. about it. I mean, you know, look in, in Kentucky, you can't, you can't be from Kentucky and not have some kind of a connection to whiskey making, right? Everybody traces their ancestry in one form or another to, to whiskey. And I think from that standpoint, you know, do I have a disadvantage? I don't know if it's a disadvantage because I think in a lot of ways, sometimes in any industry coming from an outside perspective, um, it is an advantage on its own, right? So for me, as an example, we decided to build it an urban distillery. We decided to build a distillery and design a package that's a little bit different because we wanted to bring uh, a, a different perspective to the fold. With that said, you know, we are building on the shoulders of giants here. The tradition of Kentucky is bar none. And we're really proud that we've been embraced to, to be part of this, this group. Um, so with that said, you know, it's, um, it's something that uh, I think is part and parcel of who we are. And I hope people get to know us and, and judge us for who we are rather than what their perception is. Sure. So go well, ahead, Ryan. Well, I was going to say, so you have a uh, psychological background, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Can you talk about or give us a breakdown of your uh, study of the bourbon consumer and the outlet? You know, like, what is the, the no, mindset of a bourbon consumer to you? No analysis of you here. No, no. Okay. I'm, I'm not doing this selfishly. <laughs> just uh, just uh, for, for our fans out there. Well, um, let's see. Uh, I don't know about the bourbon consumer so much as much as I think it's about um, what we're doing and what we're trying to create here. I think... This goes back to maybe an earlier point you guys made. I think what is a differentiator for us is that I've been mindful of creating a space where we can create new things, mm -hmm. right? I think as a psychologist, I learned for years, most of the people, again, came to my office for one reason or another, were stuck. You know, as human beings, we need to create. It's all about love and work, loving your family, friends, or finding something you're passionate about. And if you don't have that, you fall ill. I mean, it's a real 
traditional classic psychology kind of theory where we don't produce something, do something you love, you're prone to falling, falling sick. Uh, so my passion has been to do something that's new and original. And I've been fortunate enough to have the expertise to create a space where other young, vibrant, excited people that want to be part of this have joined me. So we got a uh, really different approach even to uh, to making whiskey. We do not have a master distiller as an example. We approach it as a collective effort. Now, this is really a lesson I learned from uh, people like Larry and Dave and, and Jim. From, where, oh, from master distillers. From master distillers <laughs> who will tell you that's a cockamamie title, right? Yeah. I mean, Jim would basically say, look, I never put a liquid in a bottle without my entire team having a consensus before it goes in. And I would never even consider not acknowledging the guy that made the grain selection to other folks who have been part of the process to maturation. And that to me felt like it's, it's something that I want to embrace because master distillery in a lot of ways is a, is a term that designates an individual hero. And we want to highlight all the heroes in this process. Obviously it starts with my story, but What's happened, we have over 200 years of industry experience on our distillation team. Uh, these are guys that are all contributing, right? And they all deserve kudos. So you're talking about the disruption or people like in the new. In any business, you have the the first, it's kind of like a line or the, like, a, the, they the, call it the long tail. Like you have the mm-hmm. first people that- I'd say the bell curve, you know, you, right, have, right. you have your early adopters. Yeah, you, you have the early adopters. And then you have the you have laggards. Have, yeah. Exactly. And then you have the people that wait to see, okay, what's going on. So who are your first early adopters? Who have they been for Rabbit yeah. Hole? And kind of the- Two people. Um, my chief marketing officer, Michael Motamity, um, and uh, Cameron Talley, our head of operations. They're number one and two hires for us. Michael was um, in Toronto. He was at that time just finishing up um, a stint at MasterChef Canada at a couple of restaurants there and uh, an entrepreneur in heart himself and um, called him up, came out here, told me I'm batshit crazy for wanting (laughs) to do this. And a week later, he moved out. Um, Cameron Talley, Cameron was um, a master's in chemical engineering from U of L was at Wild Turkey. He actually was on the same team with Larry who built the Turkey Distillery and then went to Brown Farman for a couple of years. He felt that uh, he wanted to spread his wings and do something different. So when we started designing and developing the distillery, he joined us too. Those guys were number one and two. They really took a chance on me. Mm-hmm. And without them, we wouldn't be here for sure. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I was more wanting to know who have been those early adopters as far as customers, like who oh, is Rabbit Hole, who's been embraced by, who are you like going yeah. after as those early disruptors, you know? Yeah, as far as consumers are concerned, I think that um, it's been a combination of, you know, like folks like on the other side of the bar, right? Um, Dave Kaplan and uh, Alex Day from Death & Co. were folks that uh, we talked to years ago. Um, aside from the distillation guys, I wanted to make sure that folks that are on the front lines of uh, essentially pouring and serving this product are behind us. So those guys came in and I wanted to make sure that that community is able to taste our products, give us their nod of approval, their feedback, whatever. Um, that was really the beginning of it. And, you know, there was people that liked it and there's people that were not too crazy about it. I think we had the kind of the range, if you would. Um, our ultimate goal has been to kind of go after some folks that are new to the fold. I think the toughest consumers initially, especially being in Louisville, were folks that, um, you know, are connoisseurs, if you would, the people that have identified their brand and they don't want to 
you know, they have a high standard, if you would, and it's really hard for them to embrace a name, uh, a new name, especially, a, you know, an outsider coming in. Do whiskey geeks annoy you or connoisseurs? <laughs> <laughs> As somebody new, I can just imagine just like, you know, well, you have a product and you have a focus, like you said. And I'm sure it takes it, some thick skin. Well, well, you can't please everyone. And you got to, at, at some point, you got to be like, well, this isn't, this isn't the product for you. You know, yeah. we're not going after you. So like, I guess, talk about dealing with the negative feedback from, you know, those connoisseurs who like maybe haven't given you a fair shot or whatever. Yeah, 100%. I think that the, the early year when we released, we had some kind of, uh, you know, back and forth with some of those folks that uh, were commenting on social media or other other platforms. You know, at the end of the day, just as you said, we knew that we're in it for the long haul mm -hmm. and that we're going to have critics and there's nothing wrong with that. We're not going to be everything for everybody. Uh, what we have to stay focused on is making sure we produce quality and distinct products and and that's it. I mean, be who we are. I'm not going to be able to uh, be somebody I'm not. And they're going to either like me or or they're not. And either way, it's okay. For me, as long as you're drinking bourbon, it's okay. It's yeah. all good. And so, yeah, kind of dovetail onto that. Let's talk a little bit about the pricing aspect. Because, you know, you, you look at the economies of scale that larger distilleries have had the luxury. They've got time. Uh, they've got stock. And, you know, this is this is something that we see in a market where people are trying to whether they're trying to recoup funds of putting out a a product that's either maybe not mass market ready or anything like that kind of talk about your strategy that went into to pricing your products because i think at the lower end it's around 45 and then sometimes spending on the country it could be somewhere around 70. so kind of talk about that yeah the range of the product prices is somewhere in the um, mid to late um, 40s, and then for the sherry caskets in the 70s. Um, we did a competitive analysis, essentially, with other emerging brands and other brands that are kind of in that same vein as we are. And uh, that's where the pricing really came to be. Now, add to that the fact that we, be it the grains, the barrels, um, the process in terms of even putting in the barrel at 110 proof rather than 125, put in the bottle at 95 proof rather than a lower proof, Barrels that are essentially not only charred, but toasted and charred always, um, wood fire rather than gas fire. Those are all elements that went into our overall um, thinking of where do we position this. Now, I'm really proud of the products that we have out there. And I think that the price point compared to what's out there is fair and balanced. Now, I know that not everybody is going to like that or agree with that. But I think once we tell the story of what goes in the bottle, what goes in the liquid, what goes in the products, then I think it's a different proposition. And I think we've had more and more folks come and say, okay, now it makes sense yeah. why you're placing it over here. Let me show you my P&L and you'll, you'll figure <laughs> out why, why it's <laughs> priced too. like this. Like it's not just some random number thrown out there. That's know? right. That's right. <laughs> but at least from what I understand, most of the whiskey is, is around two years old. No. Now we... Our initial release was a little bit about two to two and a half years old. And let me tell you a little bit about the thinking behind it, because I would have never released it if I didn't have particularly Larry's kind of thumbs up, if you would, because I really value his expertise and input. Um, our liquid, given the combination of being distinct and also the way it tasted at the time, we felt that it's it's a good time to release it for a small local market. So initial release was essentially just in Kentucky and Illinois, Illinois being my hometown of Chicago, and then Kentucky being our hometown here. And then slowly we grew. So now the liquid in the bottle is basically approaching four years old. 
It's about three and a half to four years old on average. And that's where it is. And we're by end of this this year, we're having basically four-year-old as an average moving forward. I think part of it was, you know, the reality that there's a little bit of a pragmatism into it, that after five, six years, it's time to, you know, if the liquid is good, go to market, but go about it in a measured way. And part of it was the reality that we felt that as a team, that it's it's distinct and can stand on its own. And so I, I guess one of the other things is, Believe me, Ryan and I, we've gone down this path. We know we knew, we know that new labels are expensive. And, you know, if we look at, like, what Peerless has done. So Peerless started off with a two-year rye, and then now it's a three-year, and then they, they age date it as they keep going. Uh, is there something that's prohibiting you from putting the age statements on the bottle? Well, the age statement is on the back of the label. We don't put it necessarily on the front, but on the back label, it indicates exactly what how, how old it is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to continue as long as, you know, we have our products. I think age is something that's relative for me. It really depends on who's making it, what's in the liquid. There's a lot of variance between, between products. And I think one of the things that for us is really significant is in the barrels. Um, I did a lot of experimentation looking at barrels that are gas fired, not toasted and barrels that are toasted and charred and wood fire. I can't, tell you, and I, I would love for you guys to experiment with that and see it if you haven't already, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, a two, three-year-old toasted and charred barrel with wood fire, the color is, I mean, your your um, listeners are not going to be able to see it, mm-hmm. but it's closer to our gin as opposed to what we have. So the flavor, the color, the, um, the readiness, if you would, is much closer to where uh, we would like it to be um, than um, if I was using a different type of barrel and maturation process. Do you think that you're finding some appeal to those whiskey geeks, those whiskey enthusiasts, or, or what do you think is, is something that's an angle that people can really latch onto that they can say, you know what, let's give this a try. Yeah. Let's go on the journey with you. You know, I don't know if there's a particular angle other than being able to talk about our story and the story being is, uh, essentially uh, trying to take a tougher path to create genuinely a unique product, right? If you want um, a high rye bourbon or a blend of high rye bourbon from MGP all day, you can go get it with a lot of different brands. If you want a product that's truly unique with grains that you've never seen before, with a combination you've never tasted with the type of barrels we're talking about or type of barrel entry and so on and so forth, then this is, this is an interesting proposition. Give it a shot and, uh, and see what you think. So I also kind of want to touch on your your relationship with with Death and Company or Death sure. and Co. What do they go? Is it Death and Co? Yeah, Death and Co. Yeah, I was like, company might be a little bit too long there. <laughs> but kind of talk about your relationship with them and, and what they're bringing to the table for you too. You know, this is an overused term, but um, creative partners is really um, it, it, the risk of being corny. They've been solid creative partners for us. I think first was getting in some ways um, the approval of people that we really respect in terms of their palate and taste and aspirations within within the industry. And then the secondarily, the realization that we actually work really well together, right? So they've, they came here and we, uh, have had a lot of interesting discussions and sessions about what do we want to do in terms of making sure that more people discover bourbon. So for most Consumers, cocktail is the first entry point, right? Given their age and circumstances, not everybody goes to a sipping experience out of the gate. So we wanted to have the best 
or one of the best cocktail makers out there to really partner up with us to showcase our product. And that was the thinking behind it. That was also the thinking behind making sure that the products go in the bottle at a higher proof in order to make sure that the flavor comes through, even if you mix it with other ingredients. So I'm going to take this on a different angle because it's it's kind of funny that, you know, you talk to a lot of master distillers, you talk to a lot of brand ambassadors, and they all say you've got to tailor to those, those people that are behind the bar uh, because they're the ones that are pouring your product. They're the ones that are doing this. They're selling it for you. They're the, yeah, they are. They're, the, they're on the front lines doing this, doing this, the hard work for you. However, on like the whiskey geek side, they're like, oh, okay, well, I'd rather have a product that I can sip neat. So do you think that maybe there was um, – there's some some confusion or there's some butting aheads in these whiskey geeks that say like, okay, like, am, am I am I more tied to a product that's really marketing themselves for more of the cocktail industry or, or, or am I getting a product that I can really like sip whiskey neat? You know, for me, honestly, guys, if I think about consumers, be it the whiskey geeks or other folks, um, I'm on the wrong track, <laughs> you know, seriously, because I'm going to be subject to the will and whim of, you know, people um, people's opinion and perceptions. And some of it could be just fad. You know, I think in any industry, if you really want to make a mark, you got to be true to what you believe in. And, you know, sometimes it's a gamble. It might not pay off, but I think that's kind of the way we're approaching it. At the end of the day, you know, we feel that the products have to stand on their own and it's about celebration for us, right? To me, making whiskey or making spirits, really spirits is the best of humanity. So if you look at around the world, Every culture, every nation has its own version of a spirit, right? That's one of the things that's kind of a binding experience for us. So, you know, you know, as long as you're sipping it, as long as you're enjoying it, as long as you're consuming it in any shape or form, uh, be it in cocktail or not, that's to me what's important. I don't want to be a snob about saying mm -hmm. this is the only way you can drink our bourbon sure. or, or should because, you know, it's all about bringing people together. And if you're able to do that and enjoy it, again, on ice or without ice, with whatever mix or no mix, that's okay by me. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, you say you don't care what people think, which that's, you have to have that to be an entrepreneur. But what, <laughs> what do you want or the story to people, should they tell themselves when they look at your product and they see it on the bar? Like what, because when you see a brand or something, there's, a, there's something connected to it. What do you think? that is for you guys? So don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't care about what they think. I'm not going to allow um, people's comments on social media sure, to yeah. change course, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. You um, can't. Yeah. No, exactly. Because otherwise do, you'd be going 50 different directions. 100%. You know, one day somebody says this and then you're like, 100%. you pivot six times yeah. a day. Yeah. That's right. With that said, I, I want them to see rabbit hole as synonymous with innovation, quality, and making distinct products that are genuine. That's what I want. I want them to know us long-term as a company and a brand that we're here to make good good quality spirits, particularly quality whiskey. That's the main objective. So speaking of long-term and objectives and business again, you know, when we, when we, talk, when we think about the money that's being put into the distillery, your long-term goals and aspirations, is it, is it, you're looking at this as an opportunity for generational sort of continuation or is it saying, I mean, don't get us wrong. Like if, if somebody wanted to buy out this podcast we've tomorrow, seen, we've seen, we'd uh, be like, we'd be like, all right, sold, like write us the check. Um, so. Yeah. Cause you, a lot of people seen, you know, like high West or Kentucky out and they're enthralled with and investors, especially are sure. like, 
let's get in the bourbon game, build a brand, and then let's exit, sell yeah. it, you know, cash in. So what's your BHAG? What's your big, hairy, audacious goal? Yeah, as, uh, you know, if you're asking me what I want, I'm looking for a multi-generational legacy brand. That's what I want. I want this brand to stand uh, long after I'm gone. Um, now, with that said, you know, um, are we going to entertain or talk to strategic partners? I think it's likely because um, be it um, on your own or with partners, the reality of sales and distribution in today's market is mm -hmm. that um, the big guys have learned from the craft beer and the wine movement where they're not complacent anymore, right? They're putting a lot of dollars and a lot of support behind it. So it's tougher for an emerging brand or a small brand to get the share of mind of distributor and ultimately the consumers. Every position placement in that back bar in some ways, you got to fight for it. It's mm -hmm. a battle, right? Um, and that requires money. So we've decided to do something I think unique. And this was the original idea when I was kind of in that entrepreneurial business side of it, where we designed a distillery, where we have the capacity to be able to do what others did for me in terms of contract distillation, right? It does two things. One, it brings really genuinely people that want to do some interesting different things and I want to kind of give back just like they gave me the opportunity. The other thing is that that revenue is going to be really essential for us, is essential for us to be able to develop a robust plan so we can make sure Rabbit Hole can actually be out there and compete with the big brands. So I can, you know, get to my vision of having a long-term multi-generational brand. Um, so but you spoke earlier about, you know, contract selling the NDAs. Yeah. Would Do you make your, you know, people purchase you? Are they allowed to explain where the source is from? We're very proud of uh, anybody who wants to talk about what we're making for them. And generally the variance is on what they want. Mm -hmm. You know, some folks talk about it. Some people or want us to talk about it. Some people don't. But uh, the other way around, absolutely. I don't have any problems in any of the folks that we're making whiskey for to be able to go and say, hey, um, Rabbit Hole's making our whiskey for us right now. Talk about roadmap a little bit. Let's let's talk about what's 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 the business going to look like here in five years? What's the what are the products going to look like in five years? Kind of, kind of see, like, give us an idea of what what's going to be happening here in your home base, as well as what consumers out there can expect to see on the retail shelves. Yeah, so um, the different bourbon recipes that we we're talking about earlier. One of the things that we're going to be doing in the coming years is beginning to release different types of bourbon out there. So we have the four grain right now. Uh, we have a high rye that's coming out sometime third quarter of this year. So that's like the next line extension, if you would, that we have. Um, we are also doing some finished products. But with that said, part of what we're working on right now is a new packaging architecture because I really want to make sure that there is a distinct difference between our bourbon and rye whiskeys, straight bourbon and rye whiskeys, with our finished bourbon and finished whiskeys. Um, I don't want to confuse the consumer, so we're working on a different package so to, we can clearly distinguish those types of products and uh, begin to roll out some of these new bourbon recipes in the coming years. We're also looking at a cask strength release in the fall of 2019 this year. And um, those are kind of the immediate stuff. But long term, I'm hoping in the next five to 10 years, we are helping consumers, just as it happened with beer and wine, are able to get more and more educated, know the difference between, let's say, a weeded bourbon versus a high rye versus, you know, a four grain and ask about, well, what's in this four grain, so on and so forth, really elevate even more the 
uh, level of IQ of whiskey consumers. Will it, will it all be under like the rabbit hole uh, name or brand or will there be like different brand names for yeah, those all the All the bourbons are going to be and rice are going to be under the rabbit hole brand. And, uh, and that's really the premise. Now we are doing some other um, experimental s- stuff with different types of spirits. You know that we have a gin that we are finishing in our rye whiskey cask. Um, and uh, we are experimenting with some clear liquids as well. I think that even though um, you know, Fred, vodka Fred's, is out. Fred, yeah, I was like, Fred's yeah. ears just perked up. Yeah, there. we're going the other direction. We didn't start using vodka, sure. <laughs> but I think you know, vodka is a is is a pretty versatile product, and I think if we can, just like the gin, do something unique and put our own fingerprints on it, we're open to doing that. So that's kind of in the um, thinking phase right now as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that as a as a good um, connection with you have with, with death and co, you know, because you, you, you're now, you're now covering a, a breadth of different products that can go into the the cocktail experience, if yes. you will. And I think in, when you get to that point, you know, you're going to have, uh, even more age on your whiskey and, and, and people might be gravitating into more, you know, people that are, are types of followers that are, they're used to age statements. They're used to big, bold flavors, that sort of thing. Sure. So it's it's going to be interesting to sort of see that sort of play out. I mean, absolutely. And is that is that Death and Co. sort of like you you talked about a partnership? I mean, you can see continue seeing that to uh, not not leave here anytime soon. I don't see that leaving anytime soon. I think you know, uh, without getting into uh, the details of it, let's just say that we're working some interesting projects together and uh, some exciting news to release hopefully in the in the coming months. And then so kind of like one of the last things I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about here is is the experience. You know, when people come to the distillery and they see it for the first time, um, what are they going to expect when they when they walk through these doors? What are they? I know that you see the gift shop, but like beyond that, um, talk about the cocktail experience upstairs. Sure. Talk about all that different things. Well, f- the first thing that happens when uh, our guests walk in, they're greeted with a with a glass of bourbon. You know, uh, we... You don't have to wait till the end. You <laughs> do not have to wait for till the end. Isn't it the worst? You yeah. go on a tour and you're like, you're smelling, you're seeing, yeah. you're seeing, and then you're like, well, can we try it at some point? No? Okay. Yeah, yeah you're, you don't have to wait till the end. Uh, you know, the way we look at this is you're coming to our home. And just as you greet a guest coming to your home, we're going to greet you with a glass of bourbon, just a small shot to kind of get the taste buds going. You go through the tour experience and hopefully you kind of take everything in, soak it in and see that full uh, transparency in action. And then you land in the overlook. The overlook is essentially uh, literally overlooking the distillation um, atrium and it's all immersed in one room. So you're sitting there and you can have a very um, relaxed and kind of leisurely, if you would, tasting experience. So we take you through all the products. You get a taste of all four products that we currently have. And then afterwards, we don't rush you out the door to get you to the gift shop. You can hang out there. This is where the yeah. Death & Co. kind of cocktail experience comes in. And we also have a stellar bar manager now who uh, joined us from the aviary. And these cocktails up there oh, are wow. phenomenal. I love the aviary. Oh, my it's God. A great it's, bar. It's, we are yeah. so thrilled to have Jordan with us. Can they recreate that uh, old-fashioned ball? They're like, have you had that at the aviary? I have. Okay. I have. And, and you know, look, we had a dinner the other night, a four-course dinner, and Jordan just it was a slam dunk. It was unbelievable the concoctions that he had made. And this is the kind of stuff that you expect to be able to experience at Rabbit Hole. And after the tour, sit out there, enjoy the view downtown. Yeah, you got some great views of the Thank city you. and the river. Yeah. I mean, do you look at it as more of like a, a higher end experience too? Because yeah, I mean, it's it's not like you're going to the 
a tasting room at, at heaven. You're not in a bucket. You're you not, yeah, you're not. <laughs> exactly. I mean, do you, do, you, do you picture that as more of like an elevated experience when you come here? I think elevated is a good word. I would also add that consciously we didn't want an academic experience, right? We didn't want you to come in and feel like you're sitting in a classroom and you're going through these tastings and this is what we want yeah. you to we wanted you to enjoy yourself and have fun, basically, and uh, and not be rushed out the door and you know buy your bottle and get out of here. Sounds like your tours are a lot like your parties because Ravenel's right. been known to throw some awesome parties and events. Well, wait wait till you see our uh, derby party this year. It's going to be phenomenal. Oh, nice. We are looking I have a derby party. Don't com- compete with me. Oh no. my <laughs> god, I didn't know that. Well, no, no, no. We do it on Saturday night. Oh, perfect. Saturday right, okay. night. We're trying to be like the closing party for the derby. So after the race. Um, we, we should have a spectacular event here. Very cool. And there's other thing because Ryan's a huge cigar guy, and I know you all have mm-hmm. a connection mm-hmm. with, with yeah. is it Camacho? Who, who is it? What's your, what's your cigar company that you? Um, so we are with the Scandinavian Tobacco Group. Um, they have um, Macanuda, Cohiba. They yes. got a whole yes. bunch of you know amazing brands. They're actually the largest um, cigar company in, in the world. And uh, they approached us about um, doing a kind of a barrel finish um, cigar. They have a brand called Whiskey Row. I don't even know how the heck they got that name, but it's part of their diesel portfolio. Um, diesel, that's what I was diesel, thinking. Diesel, that's yes, right. And that's so it's Diesel Whiskey Row. And, um, you know, it was an amazing partnership. We basically sent our barrels to Nicaragua. And um, the first um, version was in our uh, bourbon barrels. It was such a huge success that they've come back. And now they're doing a wine extension with our PX Sherry finish. And uh, it's a partnership that we're hoping to be able to continue. And it's a way of actually going towards the direction of some of those consumers that uh, like to do the cigar whiskey pairing, typically some of the um, connoisseurs, if you would, that are in that kind of uh, mode of uh, a higher end experience of that sort. And it's been pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's great because it's it's good to hear that uh, that side of the story of the, like the cigars because you can go other distilleries and they've got their cigars that are in the the glass tubes, but you, there's no story behind it, you know. And yeah. that's and I think that's what you really bring to to that experience is that there is a story there. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you know that that's the stuff. And I'll give you guys a teaser on something else that we were actually working on a project with a uh, Scotch distillery, which I'm really excited about. Again, it goes to this kind of long-term partnership with other brands. So what we're working on is that we are hand-selecting a barrel here um, in Kentucky, and we're going to age rabbit hole bourbon a minimum of five years in it. Then those barrels, once they're harvested, are sent to Scotland, and they're going to be aging their scotch in it for another five to six years. And, you know, it's all about our collaboration and most importantly, weaving a story together that has been going on for generations, right? Mm-hmm. The story of how barrels are made here, brand new American oak, we use them and they, we ship them to Scotland or Ireland and they use it. Um, so that connectivity is really part and parcel of our effort to elevate American whiskey and be able to get it on everybody's radar and get them excited about the community that's part of the spirit industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think I mean, I think that's going to wrap it up for this because this was this was an, an amazing opportunity to get more about you, about the business, about the products, about cigars. Like, I mean, we we kind the of party the parties. Yeah. I mean, we hit on everything, didn't we? Yeah, I hope. Uh, what I came away with today is like I have a huge amount of respect for entrepreneurs and people who take risks because it's like, like you said, it's insane. Like, it doesn't yeah. make sense <laughs> to a rational person. And so, like, as I sit here and talk with you, I can see like the passion and like the wear and all this that I've been through myself with like starting and you're on a much bigger scale. So I have like 
with the utmost respect of for what you're all doing. And I hope that this story and this interview will kind of help listeners be able to connect that to when they see a bottle of rabbit hole that they just don't see, oh, that's the new player that's trying to capitalize off the market. Yeah. They see that entrepreneur, the hustle, the the grind, trying to, to get on that bar. And I, I hope that people, because I can see it in you right now. And so I, it's been a pleasure. Guys, I, I thoroughly appreciate it. I appreciate you guys coming in, giving um, us a chance to talk about what's really behind the bottle and uh, um, giving your audience a glimpse of what's happening inside our distillery and hope that uh, it's an opportunity for them to get to know us a little bit better. Yeah, hop and on the train with you, you know? There jump, you go. Jump on the rabbit hole that's train. That's right. Jump on the train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, we didn't, that's one thing we didn't talk about. The name Rabbit Hole. Talk about where it came from real quick before we close it, it out. It goes back to my wife. She kept saying, uh, I'm going to take the family down the rabbit hole with my cockamamie idea. It took a good year to, uh, you know, persuade her to do this. So, uh, um, you know, but the name goes to her. And, you know, at the end of it also is that I think about it like the spirit of Alice, right? Alice was sitting there and uh, how many of us would chase a crazy looking rabbit down a hole? <laughs> You know, you I thought gotta, you were going to say a crazy woman. I was like, oh, I don't know. I've chased brilliant women in my days. <laughs> but, but that's an entrepreneur spirit. You got to go yeah. after it. You got to go after your dream. And we hope that in some ways, Rabbit Hole is also a source of inspiration for other people to get, um, find out what they want to do and go after it. You know, just sure. put their back behind it. Sure. Well, you know, speaking of the name, I'm, I'm going to look forward to maybe here in 10 years, we'll share a glass of uh, old rabbit hole or something like so. that. Something like that when it's, when it's, when it's very, very old rabbit hole. Very, very old rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> so Kaveh, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. I also want to give an opportunity for people to, uh, if you can find rabbit hole on pretty much all the social, social media channels at rabbit hole, but kind of give people an idea of, of where you are located in downtown Louisville when they want to come and see the experience and visit the distillery as well. Yeah, 711 East Jefferson in Louisville, Kentucky. We can also, you can also walk off uh, market as well. We have an entrance both on the uh, back through the back alley on the market side, but our main entrance is 711 East Jefferson. Yeah, so make sure you're you're visiting here when you go and visit everywhere else around Louisville or touring around because it's in a it's an impressive facility yeah, and it's I think perfectly situated and you know everything around downtown Louisville. Yeah, and it's going to be a different experience that you're going to see going to any other places that are downtown too. So like I said, it's you've got that modern kind of chic feel to it versus uh, versus some of the things that are a little more industrial. Exactly. So, so it's really good. So Kaveh, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today and make sure you follow Rabbit Hole on all those social media channels. Make sure you follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, try to support us as well. But with that, I want to say, Ryan, Kaveh, thank you again for joining us today. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you, guys. Yep. Thank you.